my first thought back then was how can we kind of capture the value of what is poised to be this immense transformation in the efficiency of how we do things and the efficiency of organizations and the efficiency of economics themselves. I'm Tor Bear from Enigma and welcome to Decentralize This. And welcome to another episode of Decentralize This presented by Enigma. I'm Tor Bear. I'm the head of growth for Enigma. And on today's episode, I am speaking with Jake Brookman. Jake is the founder of CoinFund, which is a crypto asset focused investment and research firm that was founded in 2015. CoinFund directly engages with decentralized networks and contributes support to companies designing blockchain protocols and applications, something that they've referred to previously as generalized mining. Jake himself has a technical background, previously studying mathematics and computer science and working as a technical product lead at Amazon. On this episode, Jake is going to talk about the vision that he had for CoinFund in 2015, why he embraces the term generalized mining and how he defines it, the future of decentralized finance on Ethereum, and why 2019 might be the year of decentralized governance. Jake is passionate about technology, experimentation, and taking the long view on what it really takes to support and grow decentralized networks. That long-term focus is something we've thought about a lot at Enigma as we're approaching the launch of Discovery, and talking to Jake really helped me keep that focus. So I hope this conversation inspires you as well. And without any further introduction, here is Jake Bruckman. Jake, thank you so much for coming on for this episode of Decentralize This. I'm thrilled you can make it, man. Thank you, Tor. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. So we're going to start this episode just like all the others. Personally, professionally, just tell me who is Jake? Um, well, I come to, I'm the founder and CEO of CoinFund, which is, um, I would say, like one of the earlier crypto funds in the US, having launched in uh, 2015. I come to crypto kind of by way of, you know, math, computer science, and having worked in the hedge fund world, as well as uh, in the pure tech world at Amazon and being kind of the CTO of of, uh, of some startups, um, you know, and then I've been uh, I've been in blockchain full time since uh, early I would say 2016, and have been studying all manner of the technologies that um, are being developed in this space. So, why do you care about blockchain and decentralization in particular? Given that you've got this background, like why why is this so fascinating to you that you have to now be like building your entire career on it? That's a great question. Um, so, so one thing is, I'm a very early adopter of things. Uh, like mm -hmm. I had, you know, the first uh, iPhone, iPhone one, um, you couldn't even use it in New York, you'd be like walking down the street, and it wouldn't be loud enough to hear what people were saying. <laughs> through the phone. Um, it was pretty bad. But, you know, one reason I'm here is because I got introduced to Bitcoin uh, in 2011 by a friend of mine here in Brooklyn. Um, and it just sort of sucked me into the world of following this uh, technology trend. Mm -hmm. uh, but the other reason I'm here is, you know, in the course of being in blockchain and kind of understanding the technology and seeing uh, what people are building and how it might be applied, this really interesting world uh, has been unfolding. And this is a world where you see an industry 
that is extremely diverse, that has people from all over the world and from all different kinds of backgrounds and, you know, from scientists and economists, but also to architects and real estate people mm. um, trying to make sense of this technology and understand how this technology could be applied to their industry. And I think that's just super interesting. Fundamentally, I'm a guy who um, who loves technology, and I also love um, sort of financial applications and thinking about economics and thinking about investment and companies. And this is the one technology that brings those two things really sharply together. People seem really interested, uh, you know, in economic incentives and and incentive design in this space. Like it comes up in every, like no matter what you're building in the blockchain space, like, you know, when, when you look at Bitcoin itself or when you look at, you know, decentralized applications or some of the new networks that are coming up now, it's like that's a principle that comes up again and again. And I'm shocked to, to suddenly have found myself in an industry where like I, I studied behavioral economics and, and mechanism design when I was an undergrad and I was like, well, I'll never use this. Mm -hmm. um, and now I, and now here we are. There's an entire industry kind of built around this point. I thought it would be useful for you know, uh, maybe designing like really engaging products, uh, if, you know, in the like iPhone app space to 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 talk more about iPhones. But you know, uh, I'm I'm glad that we've both found something that's more endlessly fascinating and and maybe more impactful than just you know a small optimization problem, just sort of like revolutionizing. Uh, how we do commerce or, and how we communicate globally. It's pretty Absolutely. cool. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, uh, and I, just to add on to that a little bit more, right? Like if you think about um, mechanism design and, and what exactly does that mean? Mechanism design mm -hmm. is kind of a way of designing uh, economic incentive systems. And when you say mechanism design, you say it in this very academic way. Like you think about, you know, the, the Vickery auction papers, or you think about these academic papers that uh. are, trying to design and optimize these systems. But the really amazing thing about, you know, essentially these decentralized token systems is that you can take those very theoretical systems and put them into reality, deploy them on the internet and see how, you know, people actually interact with them and whether they work. Um, and it's it's not that we couldn't do that before, right? We've certainly had auctions and, 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 and betting and things like that um, as, as web applications. But it's just that it feels like using tokens, you can, you have this broad spectrum of how you can design these things, and ex and and the way that you can experiment with mechanisms just becomes like really efficient and really widespread. Would you Would you agree? I I like the idea that we can iterate in this space. I've I've worked on you know the the what I would call the lame applications of some of this stuff and and help to design and and study like the impact of ad auctions let's say in like social media systems um, that's not that interesting to me but I did do it and you know that's that's auctions you know we considered a few different kind of auction designs and it never escaped me that at the end of the day the reason we were doing that was because we wanted to increase our average revenue per user and we wanted to keep them on the application as long as possible now mm -hmm. it feels like you know. Uh, it's a little more, it's a little more interesting. Like the things that we're optimizing for, or like, how do we create an entire decentralized finance ecosystem that is more empowering for an individual? So we can, you know, bypass these centralized banking systems and return some sort of ownership of the financial industry to the individuals who have to participate in it, uh, on a daily basis. Um, anyway, 
all that aside, I mean, I, I think we see eye to eye on this for sure. I, I think that now a lot of people have come around to this perspective on the space and, and they see it as really, really interesting. But I, I want to go back in time a bit to 2015 when you're starting CoinFund and you're mm-hmm. thinking about all this stuff and it's maybe more interesting to you than anybody else. Um, what did you sense at that time? Why did you sense an opportunity? And how do you think things would be different for you if if instead you were starting CoinFund today in 2019? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, well, I'll, I'll just tell you how it how it happened, which is that, um, like I said, I, I got my first Bitcoin in 2011, but I didn't actually purchase Bitcoin until, you know, I would say kind of, it must have been November 2013, like right on that upslope uh, unbeknownst to me, to uh, to 1200. Uh-huh. And even after that, after being a Bitcoin holder, I was kind of, um, you know, I was a fairly regular reader of, you know, the Bitcoin subreddit and things like that. And I was like following the space. Um, but it wasn't until I read the Ethereum white paper that things really clicked for me. And mm. I distinctly remember, you know, putting down Vitalik's white paper. And, and I like to say, I looked at the wall for 30 minutes and was like, um, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Just this idea of what he described in the paper of creating a set of tokens, uh, to do essentially what we just said, which is, you know, to participate in these like crypto economic or, or, or mechanism, uh, type systems that made so much sense to me. And <laughs> You could see how upon the world adopting these things, they could really do a lot with them because, you know, these, this highly general idea of, a, of an economic system implemented in technology using digital assets is, is broadly, broadly applicable. Yeah. And my first thought back then was how can we kind of capture the value of what is poised to be this immense transformation in the efficiency of how we do things and the efficiency of organizations and the efficiency of economics themselves. Hmm. Um, and, you know, one, I, one way of doing that is to start a startup, right? Get it funded and build one of these technologies and become one of the first, um, one of the first companies that employ that deploys this technology. But, but immediately somehow I had this intuition that, you know, when you have a, a high growth space, and um, the technology is just so early and it shifts so rapidly that maybe like putting a stake in the ground with a company and being like really sure about about what to implement isn't actually the best strategy because you want the technology to be a little bit more mature, right? You want to see how it progresses. You want to see the pluses and minuses. You want to see what other people build as a response to kind of the first to market technologies and what are all their problems. Right. And, and zooming out of that, it seemed natural that what you'd want to do is you'd want to follow a big set of these technologies and you'd want to invest and diversify your bets kind of across them as they were getting mature. And as you would follow them, you would get a lot of experience uh, and a little bit of intuition uh, and a lot of research into how these technologies develop. And that's essentially what, what CoinFund was. It was like my answer to... To, to how do you implement such a strategy? 
But when you were doing it, there wasn't even anything to read, right? You couldn't go out to the bookstore and be like crypto assets for dummies. You know, this this was not something where there was like pre-existing material. And maybe maybe today now there's sort of a pr- proliferation of content, not as much as there could be, but, you know, certainly more than there was like four years ago. So when you're starting from scratch, essentially, with with this with this thinking, when there's no fundamental valuation framework or anything else, what what's step one for you? So you're absolutely right that to today there's just orders of magnitude, more thinking, people, materials, books, resources, websites on all of this stuff. Back in 2015, you know, it's I don't think it would be fair to say there was zero. Uh, there were definitely subreddits of enthusiasts who were coming together and discussing not only the technologies at that time, like Bitcoin, but also the, the future potential um, of those of those technologies. And um, one thing that we did very early on, uh, and it still exists today, is to open up a up, open up the CoinFund Slack. And back in you know April of 2016, we I'd literally go to Reddit and and look for people who had been asking really good questions on like the Ethereum subreddit and pulled them into our Slack. Uh, mm-hmm. And we actually built a a community, a fairly sizable community of people who just love this space and would sit around and discuss uh, and analyze the different projects and, and ICOs at that time, um, a little bit of, of you know mar- market analysis, but, but for the most part, it was like research into you know, how do these things work, uh, what do they do, what are their future prospects. So I think you know, early on, the first step was just learning. It was mm-hmm. just getting people together who really wanted to understand this stuff. And, and I think we've gone a long way and I think we have a huge way to go. Uh, even today. I definitely see how this has kind of led you to where you are currently uh, in terms of you you built this core uh, learning community early on. And now you guys are still, you know, what I would consider thought leaders, quote unquote, in the space around this stuff, because because you've been used to this sort of positioning where you've been leading the conversation going forward just out of this state of curiosity and maybe I'm biased as somebody who works a lot with community and and communities of amazing people I I think it's much more powerful than trying to go it alone and if and if those conversations are happening in your channels you're going to learn so much you know faster because you have to read every message you have to understand everybody's perspective and suddenly you've got this holistic view when before maybe you're just building your own echo chambers and and it sounds like you guys have done a really effective job yeah, thank you. Um, you know, it, it, community is hard, and and because the space just develops and moves so so quickly, there was even a point where it just became too much. Like there were too many projects to even discuss in a general sense on uh, on on the Slack channel. And so what we have today is sort of like a lot more. I would say Telegram communities, a lot more research uh, houses and newsletters and things like that. So so the community of people have kind of um, you know, dispersed and also congregate, like the more financial people read the more financial newsletters and the people who are interested in DAOs read more of the DAO-oriented governance literature and stuff like that. Um, and in CoinFund Slack, it, it definitely exists today. It's it, still, it has uh, some of the OGs um, still hanging out there. And, um, you know, I would say that we're more focused on individual large projects and sort of themes these days versus the way that it was back in 16 and 17, where we like Mm -hmm. literally studied every possible, 
you know, project that came into the space when it was small enough to do that. Yeah, not the case anymore. Not the case anymore, for sure. Well, it's great. You've moved from a place of learning, not that this has ended, but from a learning-focused approach to now execution-focused. And and since you've got this execution focus now where you're, where you're taking a perspective on, on projects, let's, let's talk about generalized mining a little bit because that seems to be uh, a big piece of where the strategy for CoinFund has moved uh, t- to some extent. So mm-hmm. I'm interested, what's your definition of the term? Like maybe how it's different from what we might call non-generalized mining or generalized non-mining? Like I'm trying to understand like what the negative space here is. So what what exactly is generalized mining? And do you think it's like the best term that we could have for what you're trying to describe? So that term has definitely received a bunch of criticism for being like maybe too nerdy or technical or confusing or or, or carrying connotations. Um, you know, it wasn't it wasn't my intention to sort of like necessarily push it, but I was just trying to find a way to describe what I saw as, you know, quite literally a generalization of activities on some of these decentralized networks. And, you know, in, in mining, what you do is you start out at Bitcoin, right? And you create a crypto economic system where uh, these people who are providing the hardware of the network, the sort of computational services or validation of, of transaction services to the network are being compensated with Bitcoin. In other words, they're being compensated with the protocol um, reward or, or you, you know, using the native asset of the protocol. And so this idea of, of providing services and then getting paid automatically out of a protocol is, in my mind, this concept of mining. Now, why is it generalized? <clears throat> well, it's generalized because the the decentralized networks have themselves generalized. Before you had only Bitcoin, and then you had Bitcoin and a number of networks that implemented many other cryptocurrencies, hundreds of them. But then you started to have networks that uh, provide storage. You started to have networks that provide decentralized computation. You got Steemit, which is a decentralized um, uh, social media network built upon a blockchain. Uh, and, And a lot of other sort of applications have come to be built on these dedicated blockchains and or protocols and the protocol often incentivizes third parties to do something for the network like in the same sense that bitcoin incentivized miners to to mine transactions you know in a decentralized storage network you might have um those third parties providing this you know hard drive storage space in computation you might have them providing nodes that compute stuff uh, in and 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 by analogy, like in a in a Steemit social network situation, you might have these nodes or, or actually curators just curate the content and have the best content flow to the top. All of these participants are doing work for the network and are being compensated through an automated, autonomous, decentralized uh, protocol. And to me, that's what generalized mining is. Now, why should we care? Why is this an important point? Um, well. For many reasons, it's a it's a trend in the space. Right now, we mostly see this generalized mining trend play out as staking networks. You know, you have you know Cosmos and Polkadot and Proof of Stake uh, coming to Ethereum, and all of these uh, systems basically you know take the tokens of the token holders. The token holders lock them in, uh, vote for for maybe like validators of the network, and are getting paid. Uh, usually inflation or some kind of reward on protocol. So this, to me, is generalized mining. But but generalized mining, to me, is much more than just staking. Um, it, there's a, a whole ton of different opportunities as different 
uh, networks come online. Okay, I think that's I think that's a good definition. I mean, it, it's actually it's it is a confusing term to me. And then when you actually like talk it out like that, it makes a lot more sense. I don't have a better term. Like I want to be clear. Like I'm not really sure what to call this. To me, it's just the whole idea of like ecosystem support. I guess the question for me is like where it ends. Like what couldn't you do as a fund who is committed to this idea of generalized mining? Like you could be uh, investing in applications that build on the protocol. You can be running the nodes themselves. Yeah. You can be assisting the core developers with like aspects of mechanism design. You can be taking some sort of responsibility for marketing of the protocol. Uh, where does it, so where does it end? So I want to be clear, like I, generalized mining, a lot of people understand that as a, as something that funds do. And I don't, I don't understand it that way i you know generalized mining is just like a property of a of a protocol either you can do it in a protocol or you can't you can you know validate bitcoin transactions and get paid a reward or not mm. now where where funds come in is is uh is is as follows then if you're a fund and you're looking at some network where there's an opportunity like this to directly participate in the network and maybe earn returns Maybe that's through staking. Maybe that's through, um, like Multicoin has said in the past, you know, loss leading on a network because you're an investor there and you think that loss leading and running a node and helping them get liquidity will will make them more successful in the long term. And that's good for you long term. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a fun strategy. Active network participation, that's a fun strategy. Now, how do you actively participate in the network? Well, you could do generalized mining, but you can also, for example, you know, actively participate in the governance of the network, like people do in Maker or or LivePeer or many other or Decred, right, or many other networks, um, where that's where that's a feature today. So I want to I want to be very clear of how I separate um, generalized mining, like the concept, and things that funds do as a strategy. Um, now, where does it stop? That's a good question. I think it depends on, like. Um, kind of who you are as an investor. You know, for us this makes a lot of sense because our DNA is that we are very technical people um you know at the core of coin fund we're not afraid of studying complex uh opaque systems, we're not afraid of coding, we're not afraid of like digging into the guts of these things and analyzing them and understanding like what is the return possibility here, what is the bet? Um, and that doesn't make sense for everyone. It's just not everybody's investment style. Uh, but what is clear is that if you are someone who is an investor who's willing to do that, who's willing to engage a protocol directly, there are some really compelling reasons uh, why you might want to do that. And I'll give you a couple. So one reason is that uh, investors look to invest in assets that um, accrue value. Right. So if you want exposure to something, you have to buy the asset that accrues the value of that thing. And in blockchain, this is notoriously difficult. You you know, in the past, uh, VCs have invested in the equity of companies that have built decentralized networks and then all the value accrued in the, in the decentralized tokens and not in the equity. Hmm. Uh, in the same in the same way, like people have designed uh, digital assets that look very attractive. But if you actually study the crypto economics of those assets, they don't actually accumulate value. Right. Uh, you know, one argument, you know, in that camp would be something like, you know, utility tokens and why velocity, for instance, uh, degrades the, the valuation of utility tokens. Although I'm, I think the jury is still out on that one. Um, so if you're willing to do this kind of thing as a fund, 
then you will be able to find, I think, opportunities that are different and better at times than 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 other approaches. And I'll give you like a very simple example. Um, look at the uh, layer two space, right? Mm-hmm. So if you look at kind of the projects doing state channels above Ethereum uh, in the past year, you'll note that there's maybe 20 projects or so, order of 20 projects. The vast majority of them are open source. The vast majority of them don't have tokens. In fact, I can only name three that have tokens off the top of my head. And because the you know the jury is still out on token economics, who even knows if those token models are are truly viable and, and accumulate the value in the way that they should. So if you're an investor and you're like really excited about layer two and you think a lot of people are going to start using layer two because it speeds up, you know, the user experience, all this stuff. Well, what do you invest in? Um, well, there, in open source, there's not a lot of equity to go around, at least not yet. Hmm. Um, there's not a lot of tokens to go around. So even if you're a fund who changed your LPA and, you know, to, to be able to invest in tokens, there's not a lot of great opportunities. Um, but if you're a generalized miner, then it would be fairly trivial for you to set up, uh, let's say, hubs on those networks, um, you know, and and kind of in a, in a very cost effective way, bet on whether a particular network will go will go viral. Um, you know, your other option as a VC, it maybe is to is to wait and to see like which network actually takes off right. and where people start building startups on top of that technology. And then you can start investing in the equity of those startups. But, but that means you're not going to be getting into this space as early. You're going to have to wait for it to mature. Yeah. And, and as you're describing, you know, this is a choice that you make uh, as an investor. You know, you, you describe this model of loss leadership to support a network that you already have some sort of investment in or have a thesis around. You know, if if you're not willing to do that, like I think what we're saying is that you do have a stake in the success of these networks and the wait and see approach when really, you know, the early stakeholders in these networks, the early participants in these networks have so much to do with the success long term of these networks, you know, I, I don't know how I don't know if wait and see makes sense for anybody who's also looking to be, as you're saying, as you've been for your whole life, an early adopter of these technologies. I think you have to get your hands dirty, or maybe you, if you don't get your hands dirty, you don't even know. Uh, it's safe to say, if you're getting your hands dirty, you know more about these networks than almost anybody else who's trying to invest in them or build on top of them. Mm-hmm. That that's an that's another like really important point. The earlier you start. Um, kind of messing around with a network, learning about it, looking at the code base for their node, you know, following their updates and seeing how their system kind of, you know, evolves and progresses as they get to market. All of those are incredibly valuable pieces of information that not only enable you to make a better investment decision overall, but but also enable you to uh, be prepared to go into that network and be on that network when it when it goes to production. So I totally agree with that. Yeah, and and I should be clear, like it's something that we think a lot about, you know, in terms of network design. Like at Enigma, you know, where we open sourced our code at the end of March so that people could start digging into it even in advance of the testnet launch, just because we we value the idea that people are going to be able to look at this stuff before it even goes live. And the people who are the most motivated to dig into that code are probably the people you want supporting a network in its earliest stages, the curious people, the committed people who just really want to see these kinds of solutions succeed because they share our values around, you know, privacy or because they, you know, just they really believe that it's 
critical to the success of decentralized uh, applications and protocols more generally. Like, I guess that's nice. I don't have to tell you why you should care about it. But if you do, you know, I, I want you there as soon as possible, uh, especially if we've done something wrong. You know, we want we definitely want to know. Um, and, and I guess uh, to build on that question, then. So what what are you looking for before you decide to go deep? on a network, right? You're, you're focusing now. You're picking a few things that you're going to support, that you're going to care about. There's too many things to care about everything. Is it like you're looking for a level of adoption? Are you looking for an interesting, novel sort of mechanic? Are you looking for a good team? I know it's tempting to say like all of these, um, but is there something that has been a really clear signal for you and for CoinFund when it's when it's time to start like going deep on something? Is there something that's, you know, right up front really attracting you to something, some kind of protocol? Yeah. So that's so are you asking from the generalized mining perspective? Like how do you choose a network to mine? Yeah, and, and I'm and I'm asking, you know, I'm starting at the beginning, right? Like when you're okay. first exploring, like is there something that's proven to be signal and not noise so that going forward you're going to be looking for that thing when you're just deciding what you're going into next? Yeah. Um so that's so so the broad question of like how do you look at a project um you know, it's a fairly complicated one and one that we have been really thinking about for almost four years at this point, right? Sure, yeah. Um, I'm very happy that we have gotten somewhere. I think this year we're going to, excuse me, we were going to publish the CoinFund blockchain thesis where we sort of synthesize all of all of our experience and thoughts into um, sort of a, a strategy that, that partially addresses your, your question. But broadly speaking, you know, CoinFund is a, we we think of ourselves as as the, as a full stack investor in a decentralized world and also mm. an investor in the centralized traditional rails into that stack. So we were very very early in saying like no you might you might want to invest in apps even today even though it's like so early um just because there might be opportunities and just because it is absolutely not a fact that um, apps will <laughs> trickle down value that will accrue in the base layer protocols. That is mm. just, I, we're, we, I think we, we as a space are coming finally to a realization that um, the flows of, of value capture are actually quite situational and quite a bit more complicated than just what things like the FAT protocol thesis would have you believe, uh, right. like general heuristics. Um, and so, so that's the first point is like, what do we invest in? Well, we invest in you know the base layers, the the smart contract platforms, the middleware layers, like things like storage and um, you know analytics, like the graph and things like that. We invest in the in in a, in a couple of DApps up top that are already using um, that are, are already using the technology and, and infrastructure underneath. And then we are, for for example, we're very traditional equity investors in CoinList because this is a company that. Um, creates very much needed services that are facing the traditional world, very much needed compliance, uh, and is and enables kind of capital to flow from the traditional world into the decentralized world. Hmm. Now, how do you um, how do you pick a something like a you know a, a platform to invest in? Well, in the case of platforms, you have to then sort of sit down and and create a create an outlook about how you think platforms win the market right is it like one platform wins is it a couple of platforms win is it many many different interoperable platforms win a tiny piece of the market and there's millions of them 
Um, and that starts to inform you about whether you know you should be investing in a hundred platforms or three platforms that you feel really strongly about. And then once you have that framework, then you can go in and say, okay, well, what is the tech? What is the tech serving? What is the demand for the tech? What's the user experience of this stuff? Like, does it have a developer community? Does it work? Right. And and see, like, this is just the discussion around platforms. And there's so many different right. other areas, right? If I have to, if I have to summarize what I'm hearing from you on this, then it sounds like because you guys are considering yourselves a full stack fund, it really depends where in the stack you're investing. And and for some mm-hmm. of these places in the stack, adoption metrics are gonna matter a lot, like at the application layer and at other places in the stack, or if it's, you know, maybe a traditional a more traditional play, like something like a coin fund, uh, coin list, I should say, uh, mm-hmm. then it's going to be a different kind of metric, some sort of like you know sales pipeline style metric, and, right. and that makes that makes a ton of sense. I think it's just when you guys have so many things you could be looking at in this space, and there's so many theses around where is value going to accrue at these points in the stack. You know, that that's tough. I, I think the the most interesting thing you said was like. But you have to understand that layer of the stack before you even bother to understand a particular platform or company or entity within that layer of the stack and trying to think, is this winner take all or is this going to have a, you know, a long tail of successes and then having a perspective on how long is it going to take for this layer in the stack to evolve or reach maturity? Is that fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. I think I think for, you know, if you wanted to sort of dumb it down a bit, um, you know, you have, again, you have the, the kind of base layer platforms, you have the middlewares, and then you have uh, maybe mainstream user, consumer, or maybe even business-facing applications on, on top. And I think, like, there's a lot of different considerations uh, across those layers. So you want to think about those individually. For example, you know, the, the consumer-facing stuff, user experience is going to matter, and people are going to want to use apps that in the way that they're used to using traditional centralized apps. And so if you can't get your DAP to behave, uh, you know, on par with that user experience, then you're already like disadvantaged out of the gate. And that might be a point against you if you're trying to push that kind of product for investment. If you're on the, you know, base layer stack, then I think what's much more important is developer experience and user experience, right? Uh, interoperability. Uh, are you supporting Wasm or what programming languages can people use to, to program smart contracts? You know, it's great if you have a platform that does a billion transactions per second. Uh, that's amazing technology and or would be in blockchain, right? However, if it has no developer community then and no adoption, then it's it's just a moot point. Nobody will use it and it doesn't matter. <laughs> so um, very different considerations for different layers. Yeah. And because the po- the focus of this podcast is frequently like, what is it going to take to get real adoption for decentralized technologies? Now, unfortunately, you've made that question much more difficult for me because real <laughs> adoption for each layer of the stack, uh, that's hard to define. You know, real adoption for a, a protocol looks different from real adoption for like a layer two solution looks very different from, you know, the application layer and like is millions of users significant you know for facebook it's not but for most applications a million users is a lot the the questions are getting <laughs> are getting really hard to kind of parse out but uh it, it does seem like the the question behind that question of adoption is where is value going to be captured and we're seeing a lot of things that are creating a significant amount of value 
still, like right now. And like one of these areas is DeFi or decentralized mm-hmm. finance, which I want to talk about specifically, uh, where where there's a lot of value being created and there's a lot of theses on like, okay, who's creating the value? Is it is it a, is it the stable coins creating value? Can you invest in a stable coin if it's supposed to remain the same price forever? What are the different models for, you know, securing this? Uh, this seems to be where it's it's getting really complicated. So let's let's talk about DeFi for a second specifically because it's a good way to get into this because people are pointing to like Maker or decentralized exchanges or, or as like the missing pieces to to this puzzle now. And, and I think the narrative it, you you said before like when you really got hooked into this space was when you read the Ethereum paper and. Mm-hmm. I think the narrative for Ethereum has changed, even if like the vision of Ethereum has remained somewhat consistent. The narrative has gone from like world computer to smart contract platform. And now I'm I'm hearing more and more people describe it as like it's a decentralized finance platform, more generalizable even than Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. Do mm-hmm. you agree that the narrative seems to be moving that way, whether or not you agree with that narrative? Um, and then – do you like? It, it, do you think this is accurate of Ethereum and the way the space is heading? Like, do do you think this is descriptive of it? Do you think that's a good way to view it, or are we selling it short? Mm, I I would be on the side of no. Like, a I I don't actually hear people that much. I know people are excited about DeFi. You're, you're absolutely right about that. I haven't actually heard people say that. Oh, Ethereum is moving toward being a financial platform. Mm-hmm. I mean, like it's. It could, right? Like there are plenty of general products that find niches that are smaller than sort of that they set out to find, right? Right. Um, I don't actually see that that's maybe happening or even though that that is the maybe criteria of the moment for, for Ethereum, I don't I don't see that that's necessarily, you know, how Ethereum is going to be forever from here. Okay. Um, to, to me, Ethereum is a general smart contract platform and that is actually a very good base to build DeFi on, which is why I think we have seen DeFi develop, um, you know, de- develop so fast around around the Ethereum ecosystem. But that being said, um, you can implement DeFi apps on, you know, many other systems as well, or or, or other consensus protocols or, or dedicated blockchains. Right. And ultimately, um, you know, ultimately a coin fund, we've always we've never really bought the you know the monolithic blockchain model where you know you have one one network and every possible application lives together on that one network we just it just seems like really improbable and and the answer from a technologist perspective of why is really straightforward it's like if you're actually running uh, an application at scale then you need to be able to optimize your your backend essentially to uh, to the needs of your application. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, if I wanted to build a decentralized Facebook at the scale of Facebook, now I'm not saying that that necessarily like in, in decentralized world, like we're going to get to that scale or need to get to that scale. But if you were to try to get the same Facebook scale um, in a decentralized Facebook that's built on you know something like Ethereum, um, you would find it very hard. And the reason is that just the data architecture of Facebook that is required to serve that scale in the real world is vastly different from the architecture of a blockchain. Um, it, Facebook has something called a graph database. That graph database optimizes the queries of like, you know, what friends do you have, <laughs> you know, to your account? 
And just that fact of having an optimized data architecture enables Facebook scale and nothing less enables that scale. So if you were to tell me like, oh, well, I'm just going to like implement Facebook on on a blockchain using all of the limitation criteria of that blockchain, I'd be like, well, it's not going to work. Yeah, uh, because you need a great graph database essentially to get to that scale, and so you know those kinds of like very technical considerations is what makes me think that, um, as a matter of fact, uh, you're going to see many different architectures serving many different application types, and it's not necessarily that all of those can coexist in a single platform. So if you're telling me that you know. DeFi is only going to be on Ethereum, and that's what Ethereum is going to be specialized for. Uh, you know, I'm inclined to say that that's plausible to some extent, but as soon as you get into scale, and as soon as you get into some kind of application that needs a different architecture, you're going to fly off the the map there, and and you're gonna you're gonna need a different network. So I I, I definitely see where you're coming from there. I think uh, to take it back for a second to the idea of like okay. You don't agree that like the narrative is really moving this way. You don't agree that it's a good narrative for Ethereum. The reason I've heard the narrative move this way, I think, is not because it's true, but because it's tied to observable metrics of adoption. Yeah. And and we're seeing people we're, we're able at least to measure like, OK, Uniswap is growing by X percentage or people are opening, you know, this many CDPs. And like we, we don't ask why necessarily. And we don't ask how scalable is this? And we don't ask, you know, for what purpose, you know, all of this is going to exist in five years, let's say. But it's where the growth is observable. And it's it, maybe it's, you know, a little bit too much of like short termism. Um, but, you know, the, the question remains, like, what else do we have to go on if we don't have observable adoption for the things that we're trying to get to? Right. Like if we're saying we're still developing the base protocols for some of these specialized applications, whether it's DeFi or, or, or DAOs or something else, if we haven't yet gotten to the point where the stack is going to support these kind of applications at scale, you know, what, what should we be looking for then? You know, if, if that adoption is not really necessarily meaningful just yet or is it meaningful? I'm not sure. I actually think it is very, very meaningful. Um, the fact that uh, that Uniswap has this this tremendous growth relative to other projects, the fact that uh, Maker has so much Ether locked into it, the fact that people are actually borrowing from from lending protocols or staking and staking protocols, that is actually very, very healthy. That is very, very good news for the space. Um, and you know, if you take the point of view of of a traditional investor. Uh, or maybe even like a VC style investor, that is the one metric in new industries that they're looking for. Like, can we find evidence of traction? Can we see what's growing? Can we think about what's going to grow next year? And so the fact that we're seeing this, you know, A is great because it's attracting attention. It's showing that, uh, you know, that that these platforms uh, actually are useful to people and people are actually borrowing and, and, and doing financial transactions on these protocols, even though, you know, the number of people doing that at the end of the day is still fairly small. And they're probably still very, um, you know, very much uh, kind of in the space and, and are, and are an, at enthusiast level. Just the mere fact of them being able to uh, to try out something like a lending protocol is great because it allows you to test it. Now, is is that state of affairs going to be on Ethereum forever? Um, I don't think so. I think a lot of these these protocols will, you know, 
spread out across different base layers. They'll go to different chains based on their scalability needs. Um, they might go to different chains just to serve the communities of those other chains with the same exact service that people in Ethereum find useful. Um, so I, I think it's great. And I think this is the, what we're seeing is just the beginning uh, of DeFi. That's exciting to think. I, I mean, I would hope this is just the beginning because, as you said, it's not very big yet. But the green shoots are there. People are using it. I, I like to joke sometimes because my, my title is head of growth with Enigma and all mm-hmm. my responsibilities in sort of creating this sustainable ecosystem. So I like to joke that uh, my title is head of growth, not head of shrinkage. And <laughs> it's if I do my job right, then it's sustainable long-term growth. If we don't get these like explosions of activity followed by extended periods of contraction, mm-hmm. that's that's not what you want to see. That's not what you want to optimize for. My concern with all these metrics, right, all the time, these growth metrics, especially for networks, is this is going to look good in the short term. We're going to hit a plateau as we like – maybe you've got 100 people in your addressable market all over the world and they're all using your application all day and now it's next week and a few of them got bored and there's nobody new to reach you know it's going to look good for a little bit but if another better solution is out there if there's a better technological stack if it's something that's got better credibility with developers or whoever your target user base is you know you always have this risk you know you you have to run so fast just to stand still in this decentralized space uh, that, you know, it's definitely too early to say what's going to happen. But Mm -hmm. I also agree with you that like, there's not much else to go on to be able to, and and you definitely would prefer to see what we're seeing with maker um, than to see something that has no adoption at all. That's just uh, still a theory on a chalkboard. Yeah. So to take, well, go, go ahead. So, sorry, if I, if I could just add a little bit to that, um, you know, you mentioned that your show, here is is a lot about thinking about you know adoption and how that happens mm-hmm. and you know in light of our discussion of of defi protocols like i think i think when you deploy these kinds of protocols into the world and these kinds of protocols have obvious efficiencies over other methods and this might be like you know oh i can go to a bank and i can get a loan for five percent interest but if i go to this decentralized protocol i might be able to get it for four percent interest right like if you introduce these sorts of um, economic efficiencies into the world and blockchain they happen because you're taking out middlemen you're replacing paper processes with technology you know you're doing things online globally cross border cross regulatory jurisdiction etc mm-hmm. um then those things tend to get slowly but surely adopted over time and the only thing that i think the blockchain space needs to make sure is that um that they have enough scale to support you know the eventual operation of these platforms uh, in a global way yeah, well, scalability is is a big deal for us too. Uh, and, and yeah, scale, you know, we can support something maybe at the scale of tens of thousands of people right now at an infrastructure level, but the goal is billions. Uh, <laughs> that That's the only thing to me, I guess, that's ultimately meaningful because we already have applications and, and networks that serve billions of people. So I think mm-hmm. to be relevant, we need to do the same. So I've got mm-hmm. I've got one last topic for you. Um, related to what we've already talked about, because, you know, you're always looking at new things that are coming up at every layer of the stack. And some of them are using interesting uh, new technologies. Some of them have interesting new economic structures and models. I'm curious if there's any structure in particular now, something you've never seen tested before, whether it's for, 
governance, network security, token distribution, something like that. Is there something you're seeing now that you think has a lot of promise that's as yet unexplored? Like it's just an experiment right now, but that we should watch out for. Yeah. Um, so a bunch of things, but let me let me give you kind of two, and one is maybe a subset, subset of the other. Um, so one thing that 2019 definitely seems to be is uh, the year of decentralized governance, not just discussions about it and uh, pro, you know philosophical progress on mm-hmm. whether governance should be on chain, off chain, centralized, decentralized, delegated, not delegated, um, but actually putting uh, DAOs into production mm-hmm. and experimenting with these things. So you know if you haven't been around, 2016 was this like cataclysmic event where uh, some folks put a DAO into production. It, spectacularly exploded after being hacked and then it took a couple of years to you know sort of get over that and and uh and re-implement things in a little bit more responsible way and 2019 is here it's that year uh, where we've done that you have uh dow stack uh has gone to to market you have aragon DAOs on mainnet and you have specific dow projects so you have moloch dow uh, which is a DAO meant to grant write on Ethereum. You have a DAO called DXDAO, which is meant to be the sort of controlling organization of a decentralized exchange by Gnosis uh, called uh, Dutch X. You have governance processes on chain and various projects like Decred, where uh, together with Placeholder, we've launched a, a Decred VSP uh, to sort of accumulate voting power and, and participate in the governance process. Um, so this idea of governance is really, really uh, important, I think, to decentralized networks. I think we've now know that viscerally as a space after things like 2016's, uh, you know, DAO hack and, and and many many other issues. Mm-hmm. That's number one. Number two, we've we've put now technology into production into mainnets that implement DAOs where we can today go and experiment with these things and try to run like a little organization and see how it works. Um, you know, and number three, this very important um, feature of DAOs is that unlike a traditional firm, a paper firm or a legally kind of mandated firm, right? Uh, this is a computer program. So it, it's on a software development life, life cycle. I think it has a vastly different design space than a firm. Uh, in the sense that you could create many more structures that you couldn't do before, and most importantly, you can iterate it much faster than I think a uh, you know a paper firm or a paper organization, uh, because it's a matter of upgrading the smart contracts of these things. So we are now in 2019 officially on a you know in a world where we have the digital organization. We've invented that; it's already in production, and from here, these things are going to iterate and create structures that. Maybe we haven't seen before. And DAO stack uh, actually has a really, really good characterization of why a DAO is different than a traditional firm. Uh, And that is that essentially a DAO is a horizontally scalable firm. The way that I'm the way that I'm understanding this is that you can grow a DAO to coordinate a lot of people at a very large scale, much more than an organization, without ever actually changing the structure of the DAO. And that's really, really interesting. Um, so, so that's one area that I've been spending a lot of time in. Um, I actually, last week, I, I published a little bit of research on value, relative value of governance tokens in such systems. 
Hmm. And then the subset of these systems, I think open source sustainability projects, projects like Gitcoin, like OSCoin, everybody who is looking at, you know, how do we use some kind of decentralization technology um, in combination with, with code repositories to basically monetize open source. I think that's a super powerful concept. I think the, the networks or projects that get this right are going to enable uh, exponential progress in technology just beyond blockchain as well. Yeah, it certainly seems to be high leverage, right? If you can properly incentivize people to contribute to your open source ecosystem, you know, it's just another model for economic incentive design and mechanism design. Like, how do you get coders to show up and actually support this thing and and good ones at that? Uh, And also at the same time, have them be thinking critically about things like the governance process um, and ecosystem growth. And it's, oh, it is hard. This is the one thing to stress, right, is that all of this is really hard. But uh, that's why it's good to have people, as you said, writing about it, thinking about it. I'm glad we live in 2019 right now and not, you know, 2015 when you guys were doing a lot of the hard work early on without that support. But today we have people like yourself writing very frequently. So for listeners who want to learn more about governance or uh, generalized mining or anything else that you've written about, where can they go to keep up with what you're writing, what CoinFund is doing, where, where, what are the channels? Sure. Uh, a bunch of stuff. So so number one, of course, is our blog, which is blog.coinfund.io, where we publish, where we're now beginning to publish all of our theses and, and companies that we invest in, um, as well as just writing thought pieces on on the space. Uh, number two is you can join our Slack. If you send an, an email to info at coinfund.io and request access, we can get you into the Slack. Um, clearly, you can follow us on Twitter, uh, myself, JBRUKH, uh, on Twitter. And finally, if you're in New York or or or, uh, or coming through New York, we have a fairly regular uh, meetup almost, almost twice a month at this point called Rabbit Hole Talks, where we invite uh, founders of blockchain projects to kind of deep dive into their tech. So come by to one of our events. Amazing. Well, for those who are lucky enough to live in New York, you should definitely go check it out. Uh, If like me, you live in a city like Chicago, uh, you know, we're not New York, but we're trying to have that kind of cool stuff going on from time to time. Uh, You know, decentralized ecosystem requires, you know, global events and such. So I I aspire to your level of activity. That's really impressive. Well, Jake, thank you so much for joining me. On this episode, I'll put all those links into the podcast description so that people can follow up. But thank you for taking the time and best of luck with everything you guys are building. Awesome. Thank you very much, Tor, for having us. Um, and uh, we look forward to seeing the community at our at one of our channels or events.